Father, I'm, and you know this more than anyone here, I'm just a man. And apart from you and the work of your spirit and your word, nothing will happen in these next few moments that is supernatural or that is by the power of your spirit. And so, God, forgive me, a sinner, and use the teaching of your word to cause your people to enter into worship. And for those that may not have yet trusted you, I pray that they would see, they would see you for who you really are this morning. And that would lead their hearts to worship. And so, God, as we move into this time, may we worship you through the teaching and hearing and receiving of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of the sermon this morning is Trusting the Resurrection of the God-Man. What do I mean by God-Man? Jesus is often referred to as incarnate, in the flesh, God in the flesh. So you have the God-Man, Jesus. But there are lots of assumptions about Jesus and about the resurrection, even Easter, and perhaps that's why many aren't even here this morning. Assumptions, um, kind of put it in common language, can eat our lunches. Assumptions can eat us alive. And it's easy for any of us to make assumptions. Everyone does it daily, most likely. All you need is incomplete information about a situation. And the absence of complete information, you have to fill in the blanks for yourself. So you fill in the blanks with your interpretation of what you see or what you hear. Your interpretation usually comes from your past experiences or something that seems similar. Armed with your information, you connect the dots. Often those dots aren't really there. You can't help doing this because you're missing relevant information. In trying to make sense of the situation, you make connections between today and the past. Connections, perhaps, that don't really exist. And you jump to conclusions that often are wrong. And it usually costs us when we make those kinds of assumptions. And like I say, I think we do it all the time. In high school, I made an assumption that cost me both of my front teeth. It wasn't a fun experience. It was a bad assumption. I was practicing, uh, and in high school, I played quarterback on the football team. And many of you who know the game of football just a little bit, you don't have to know much, I was running the option. So as a quarterback, you take the snap, fake a handoff or give it to the fullback, run down this line, and just as the defensive end hits you in the chest or the face, you pitch the ball to the tailback, and the tailback's able to run around the end. And so we ran that play at practice, but we ran it poorly. And so the coach said, run it again. And when we would run a play a second time, typically 
the defense would kind of play soft because they knew what we were running and nobody had to be a Heisman on Tuesday, win the Heisman on Tuesday at practice. And so I assumed that the defensive end would play soft. Well, I did my little number. I came down the line. I pitched, and when I pitched, he hit me so hard under the chin, under the face mask, that even with a mouthpiece, I saw stars literally. And I started to punch him and tried to fight him, but I couldn't really get my balance. And the coach said, come here. And he took my helmet off, and he said, I'm trying to figure out where you're bleeding from. And I was, blood's coming all down, you know, and I'm trying to not drink it. And he grabs both of my front teeth, and he starts wiggling them. And he said, well, that's the source of the problem. And I said, what do you mean? He said, your teeth are really loose. Put your your mouthpiece in. I think they'll stay in better that way. Bad assumption. Assumptions uh, can eat our lunch. I think our current culture is making an assumption with eternal consequences. Far worse than losing your front teeth. In past decades, there was a lot of, ba- a lot of debate about the resurrection of Jesus. Did Jesus, did he have a physical body? Was it just a spiritual resurrection? Is the whole thing just a myth? Did he, uh, you know, and these debates would just go on, especially in theological circles. It seems to me, though, that this generation is not that concerned with Jesus' resurrection. It is assumed to be almost kind of irrelevant. It's assumed that, you know, kind of like that defensive end on the second play, He's not going to, he's going to play soft. He's not going to do anything. And what can happen is spiritually, we can get the stew knocked out of us. And so it's almost like discussing life, you know, talking about Jesus and the resurrection. It's almost like discussing life on other planets. You ever get in one of those conversations with somebody? It's like, in the end... We can't figure the answer out to that. And does it really matter to my life today? And so by the time that conversation's over, we usually all kind of walk away and nothing ever really changes, nor should it in that case. But here's the fatal assumption, the eternal assumption. If Jesus did rise from the dead, he's God. Has to be. No one rises from the dead. But if he didn't rise from the dead, then it's kind of like that discussion about life on other planets. It really doesn't matter. It really doesn't. In our text today, I want you to turn there with me, Acts 17, and look at it as we go. There are three assumptions that the people in Athens, Greece, not Georgia, not at UGA. They probably are making the same assumptions, though. Um, There are three assumptions in the text that not only did they make 2,000 years ago, but I think we're still making them today. 
The first assumption is this. They assumed their religion would save them. They assumed that their religion would save them. Look at Acts 17, 22 through 24. So Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Isn't that just kind of goofy? We've, we've got an unknown God that we're worshiping. We've got known gods, and then we've got this unknown guy because we just want to worship something. What therefore you worship as unknown, Paul says, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands. First off, just some context. Paul is at this place called Acropolis, which was where the council had met for hundreds of years. There were stone benches that they would come and they would make decisions, political decisions. By this time when this is happening, they're still using it, but it's almost gone to, the, to waste. They're, they're very seldom using these, this area outside of Athens. But what Paul is doing is he's trying to help them, and in some sense, he's exploding their view. He's exploding their understanding of God. He's saying, God is vastly beyond your small view of him. You think he's these little carved images and objects that you set up in your temples. And right here, it's almost like if you could put it in modern-day English, it's almost like Paul's going, give me a break. Give me a break. You really think God is these little images that you're carving and putting over here in your temple? How foolish. The real God, he says, made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. We've got to learn from them. Here's the question, and you know, the assumption, the first assumption was they assumed their religion, their religion would save them. And I'm saying they make that assumption, and today we make a very similar assumption. How do we do it? I think that every time I meet someone who professes faith in Jesus, but there is no spiritual fruit in their life like what you see in Galatians 5, and beyond. There's no spiritual fruit. And here's the other part. I don't see them treasuring the pearl of great price. I don't see them treasuring their relationship with God. I think they've done very, something very similar to, create, to creating these small images and set them up in the temple and worshiping them. It's not biblical Christianity. It's not. Coming to church every time the doors are open doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. Only faith in Jesus' death and resurrection coupled with a biblical repentance leads to knowing God and being saved from our sins. 
We can do all kinds of things, and it can look like on the outside, you're such a great Christian. But on the inside, Jesus says, you're, you're whitewashed tombs. Your heart is far from me. You look good, but on the inside, it's not real. And so they made that assumption. Their religion would save them. The second assumption that we see in the text Look with me at Acts 17, 27 through 28. That they should seek God and perhaps, my, my version in the ESV says, feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. It says, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, it is just an interesting footnote. <clears throat> Paul is stepping into their philosophical culture there in Athens. Lots of poets, lots of philosophy. And he's even taking some of their truth and he's quoting it right here. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Those are, those are their words. He's taking their words and he's showing them the truth behind even some of the things that they believe. But I love the, the, the statement, he is not far from each one of us. In each of us in our lives, there is a tendency to feel like he's not close. We don't necessarily feel like he's close. As you sit there right now, if you're looking at me, in a normal eye, the light rays come to a sharp focusing point on the retina. The retina functions, and this is fascinating to me, like the film in a camera. The retina receives the image that the cornea focuses through the eye's internal lens and it transforms it into electrical impulses that are carried along by the optic nerve to the brain. The brain deciphers the message that you have, and the message is, there's Clint standing up there on an elevated platform. All of that's happening right now. Not only is that happening, but your nervous system, that was amen. Your nervous system, essentially it is the body's electrical wiring, fascinatingly complex. It is a complex collection of nerves and specialized cells known as neurons that transmit signals between different parts of the body. It's happening right now. Neurons signal to other cells through fibers called axons. Chemicals called neurotransmitters are released and it gaps called synapses. These communications take only a fraction, a fraction of a millisecond. Sensory neurons respond to that stim stimuli such as light and babies crying and sound and motor neurons carry activation signals to muscles and to glands. Neurons are suppo supported and fed by glial cells which are the Greek word is glue cells. 
Now, why do I say all that? Bob says, I don't know. Why did you say all that? Sound like a big waste of time. <laughs> Let me tell you. All of that is happening involuntary right now. You're not sitting there consciously telling your body to do any of that. Your body is just doing that. So when Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being, you don't even recognize it. But if he were not, if he did not put you together, and make your body continually work day in and day out, you would not live or move or have your being. It is him all the time. The complexity of the human body alone, much less the galaxy, should speak to us about the reality of a creator far bigger than the created images of human hands worshipped in their temples. The scriptures teach that God is infinite. There is no end. This means that he, his being has no limits. Wrap your head around that. His being has no limits. Therefore, there can be no limit, follow this, there can be no limit to his presence. He is omnipresent. Everywhere, all the time. In his infinitude, he surrounds the finite creature and contains it. One of those finite creatures is you. There is no place beyond him for anything to be. God is our environment as the sea is to the fish and the air is to the bird. God is over all things, under all things, outside all things, within but not enclosed, without but not excluded, above but not raised up, below but not depressed, holy above, presiding, holy beneath, sustaining and filling. That's our God. God is near. Though you may not feel or see, or even hear him, I promise you, in him, we live and move and have our being. So they didn't believe that he was near. That was the second assumption. The third and final assumption is this. They assumed that judgment and the resurrection were not true. They assumed that judgment and the resurrection were not true. Look again with me at Acts 17, 30 through 34. The times of ignorance God overlooked. In other words, there's a new covenant. He's bringing Christ into the world. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, that person is Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So we get assurance through his resurrection. Another massive reason the resurrection is such a big deal. 
And then he goes on. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Sound familiar? But others said, we'll hear you again about this. Remember, they're philosophers. We'll hear you again about this, Paul. We'll hear you again. I I think I got with you, but I want to hear that again. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Isn't that interesting? Some mocked, but some joined and believed, among whom were this guy with a D. You see that in your scripture? That's why I need you to look along, because I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. I've tried a few times in my study, and every time I get it right when I'm listening to it, and then I get up here, I can't say it. Dionysus. And he was from the place that starts with an A. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. People have made this same assumption since Paul preached 2,000 years ago in Athens. Every generation for 2,000 years is guilty of assuming God did not become a man. God did not live a perfect life. God did not die a substitutionary death. And we know he surely did not rise from the dead. Notice, it says, some mocked. Could you imagine? This is how I think it played out. They're listening to Paul, and they say, that's ludicrous. That's what they say today. You, Paul, are an idiot. If you believe he was raised from the dead, how foolish of you, Paul. People don't just get up and walk around after they've been dead. That's just foolish. This is important to note that that's what they did, that they mocked. 2,000 years ago, when Paul said this, they mocked. Why is that important? These weren't gullible naive, you know, you think 2,000 years ago, people weren't very smart 2,000 years ago. You know, they didn't have, they weren't enlightened like we are now. We have all this information. No, they thought this was crazy too. And they weren't dumb. If you, if you really go back and read some of the writings of people from 2,000 years ago, you'll find they're smarter than you. These people said, this can't be. And they assumed even then, that the resurrection simply could not be. For me, the question is not could the resurrection happen. The question is really, is there a God? You know why that's the question for me? Because if there is a God, (laughs) miracles and resurrections are just going to happen. Because he's God, you know? So the real question is, is there a God? And I think it's wonderful. I think it's amazing that God has given us three things to, to truly answer that question. And sometimes you get into apologetics and people give you all these things and I try to study them and learn them and somebody says there's not a God and I go back and I'm trying to think of what Josh McDowell said and what somebody else said and then before I know it, I can't remember any of it. But I got three things that I can remember and I think you can too. Is there a God? The first one is the creation 
and I'm going to talk about that. The second one is the Christ. I'm going to talk about that. And the third one is the gospel. I can remember those three. Let me tell you what I mean by the creation. If you would, and I know maybe some of us aren't that familiar with the Bible, but look at Romans. It's really the next book over from Acts. We're going to look at Romans 1, and this is one of the more substantial texts about seeing God in creation. We're going to look at verses 18 through 23, but before we look at that, I want to say this to you. In these verses, you could easily feel like as I read them that even in my reading them, I'm judging you because these verses say some hard stuff about God and his wrath. But what I want you to know is I weep over these verses because I didn't always believe what I believe. Matter of fact, for the first 20 years of my life, if you'd have told me I'd have been a preacher, I would have laughed in your face. For me, <laughs> this, is, this is what losers do my first 20 years. But I will say, God opened my eyes to the truth of his word and to the gospel. And that's what I'm praying as I read these verses. I'm not judging. I'm praying that God would open your eyes. Let's look at them together. I'm going to read it. So I need it. I need my glasses. Starting in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So our sin suppresses the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, and it's, then it's explaining that, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. What this passage is saying is all you have to do is look. Just look at creation. Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? Have you ever been out in the country on a starlit night and looked up at the sky? My family, I was asked to speak in South Africa and we went to Cape Town. And in Cape Town, there's a mountain that's called Table Mountain. 
And it's called that because if you look at it from a distance, it rises up and it comes up and it looks flat almost perfectly like a table, like you could throw a tablecloth over it and have a massive dinner for giants. When you get up on top of Table Mountain and you look out around Cape Town, what you see is stunning. You see the ocean crashing up against the side of the mountains. And you see the seagulls and you see maybe, if you're fortunate, a well surface and go back under. It's astonishing. His eternal power and divine nature have been seen through his creation. The second reason I believe in the resurrection, the Christ. So there's the creation and now the Christ. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. The historical person of Jesus is practically irrefutable. I'm saying not that he was God and man. I'm saying the historical person, like in history, historians will say there was a person named Jesus from Nazareth. They'll give you that. Almost anybody will give you that. And then C.S. Lewis comes along and he says, and it's, it's great logic, he says that this Jesus, this historical person, he must have been truly the Lord or he could have been a liar or he was just a raging lunatic. Now, why would they say that? This is why they would say it. Many people will say, yes, Jesus existed and he was a good man. Maybe even a prophet. That's what Muslims will say about Jesus. The problem with this line of thinking is all through the Gospels, Jesus calls himself God. Good people and prophets don't lie about being God. You see where I'm going? That, that would be lying. I would not call that person good. I would say that person is a liar, and his lies are horrible. But then they would say, well, <clears throat> then I guess he was a lunatic. You know, maybe he was. But here's the thing. When you, when you follow the apostles and Paul and all these women, they followed him to their death. I wouldn't follow a lunatic to my death, you know? If one of you said, I'm God, and you went out and set out to prove it, I just wouldn't follow you. I'd be like, yeah, you know, you're on your own on that one, brother. But the miracles authenticated him, and then what Easter is all about was the final authentication of who he was. He is the Messiah because he resurrected. He rose from the grave. He is Lord. 
And then there's the gospel. Look at Acts 17, 30, and probably 31. It says, the times of ignorance overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he fixed a day on which he would judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Jesus. And this, and of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And here's where I'm going with this, with the gospel. You, you may not fully understand it, but essentially what the gospel is saying is this. Every single person in this room, including me, is a sinner from birth. Because of what happened in Genesis from the fall, we are born with a sin nature. Just watch a parent try to raise a small child. They are little sinners. They're selfish. And we know what, you know what we grow up to be? Big sinners that are selfish. And when you don't get your way, you pout. You just learn sophisticated ways to pout. But it's the same problem all the way through life. You, you block something I want, you'll see my anger. You'll see my sin. Probably. So what do we do about that? What we do as people is we try to be good. And we try to clean up our act, and we try to be moral. And what we're thinking internally is if I can be good enough, maybe God will accept me. If I can be just good enough, maybe I can go to heaven when I die. Or some of us probably say, that's all a bunch of hogwash anyway. We're just going to die, and annihilation will be the, you know, this be the end of us. And so that's the assumption that I call the fatal one. But the gospel is this. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner. God the Father had a plan. He sent his son in Jesus Christ to come. And here's the the thing, some people don't get this. Jesus had to live a perfect life. Do you know why he had to live a perfect life? Because you could not live a perfect life. So he lives a perfect life in your stead because he becomes the substitute for you. And for your life. And so when the father sees, he doesn't see your sin. He sees his son's perfect life. But then he doesn't just see the perfect life. He sees a death that you couldn't die. Because God has said in the scriptures that without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness for sins. Sin is such a big deal to him that he's going to kill his son. And that is why we have to trust in that substitutionary work of Jesus for us to become Christians. In other words, God, instead of looking down and seeing me in my sinfulness, he sees me covered in the life and death of his son if I have placed biblical faith and repentance in him. And I now can enter into a relationship with God. Now, why does the gospel help me believe that God is who he said he is? Why does the gospel help me believe in the resurrection? Here it is. If a man would have written this story, I'm just saying, he would have come down here and he would have wiped out all of his enemies and he'd be sitting on the, the king of the throne of thrones on like, what is that show? Y'all know what I'm talking about. 
And, uh, and he would be ruling over the seven kingdoms or whatever it is, and he would be the man, the king. But what is the story of the, the gospel? Jesus comes born in a manger and becomes a suffering servant, submissive, is beaten by his own creation and killed on a cross. No man writes that story. And the other way I know the gospel's true is you can't earn it. We all want to earn it. I'll just be good enough. I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'll be good enough. The gospel is true because it's grace. It's the only thing out there. Think about the way when you go to work, you go to work, you work your butt off, you do a good job so that you can get a raise and get promoted and everything is on merit and everything is on works and everything is on the better, more you do, the more you get. Not the gospel. The gospel is the only thing out there that it's grace alone, unmerited favor. God looks down and he just places his blessing on you and you could never earn it. And that's what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. And that message of the gospel is from heaven and heaven alone. Nothing on earth comes up with that message. Can't happen, won't happen, wouldn't happen. So the gospel is countercultural. The creation, the Christ, and the gospel tell me, yes, he is resurrected. He's real. A final word, and honestly, if I'm, if I'm telling you the, the, the truth, I, I thought about, you know, some of our members are getting up in age, and, uh, and all of us, I mean, if you just flash Fast forward 100 years from now, even this little baby is going to die. Here's the other part of the gospel and the other part of Easter that is so incredible. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, this is what it says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does first fruits mean? He's the first to be resurrected. But because of his resurrection, you, those that are sitting here looking at me that know the Lord, are the other fruits. You shall one day be resurrected in him. That is the glory of Easter. And it is the gospel truth.